Okay, well, uh, we're talking today with Joanne Yates and Craig Murphy, who have written a book called Engineering Rules, Global Standard Setting Since 1880. Um, Joanne is a Sloan Distinguished Professor of Management at MIT, and Craig is the Betty Freyhoff Johnson 44 Professor of Political Science at Wellesley College. And thanks for joining us on the Hagley History Hangout uh, for this. Um, well, the, the book, the book title is the first question, Engineering Rules, Global Standard Setting Since 1880. Can you explain what you're talking about in this book and why you use those terms? Yeah. So our focus is on a, a particular type of standard setting, um, voluntary consensus standard setting. So this is not where governments set standards and, and mandate them. This is where private organizations made up primarily of engineers uh, set standards by uh, sitting down at a table and arguing and arguing and arguing until they arrive at uh, a standard they can all agree to. And engineers play the major role in this and have for a hundred years. And there's standards for everything. There's standards for the width of the boards behind us, the heights of the windows, the size of our clothing, the electrical uh, current. current that's going through uh, the the screen size that we have, uh, almost everything in our built environment that is manufactured uh, is conforms to some kind of standard. And most of those standards have been set by little tiny committees of engineers. They are the rules done by engineers. <laughs> now, no, I think we what? also intended a, a slight pun on engineering rules as well. <laughs> <laughs> engineering rules. <laughs> Well, I'm sure that's popular with the engineers. Uh, but yes. why do we need engineering rules? Why does this happen? And why does it happen? And why does it happen when it happens? Okay. So we need these standards, these rules, because so much of uh, innovation builds on platforms of standards. You have to have standards that uh, uh, allow an even um, ground for it that, that allow interoperability, that allow things like that before you can innovate on top of it, before you can have a lot of the new technologies that um, we want to have. If you don't have, for example, uh, screws and threads that work together across companies, then every single time you lose a screw or strip a screw in some piece of machinery, you have to go back to the original manufacturer. And that's what happened for centuries. Uh, you know, there were not ways to have standard screws that always worked with the, the, the nuts, the threaded nuts. I mean, this was a problem through both world wars too, where England and the US, for example, had different uh, standards for a lot of screws and threads on airplanes and <laughs> it caused problems. So it's really important to, to have standards. And, and so many of our technologies, modern technologies, are network technologies. Right. We're just for the connections of the electrical system or even the railway system. You actually have to have standards to make things go from one place to another. Anyone who's been uh, at the point in Eastern Europe where the old Russian railway system and the European railway system come together 
and you have to get off one train or go on to the other, or in some places have the railroad cars lifted from one to another because the, the uh, Russian tracks are wider, knows that network systems have to have standards. Have to be interoperable. So when is this, this effort to standardize screws, rails, rules of various sorts, when does that emerge? Yeah. So the, the, the type of organizations whose, uh, whose whole uh, mission in life is to set standards, they emerged uh, right around 1900. Um, but in the, in the late 1800s, a lot of engineering societies had been established. That we were going through a period of professionalization of engineers. And so they all had established, you know, mechanical engineering societies, all of all the industrializing countries and, and chemical engineering societies and so on. So as part of the, the professionalization project, essentially, a lot of those um, societies thought that one thing they could offer to the world is to help set standards. And so they started setting up committees within um, their societies to set up standards. And around 1900, a, a new step was taken, which was to set up organizations that combined uh, people from engineers from different uh, disciplines of engineering coming together and having a sole job of setting standards, no longer uh, engineering societies that also set standards, but organizations that were there solely to set standards. This started in the UK. The first one, uh, the first national level one was in the UK, um, partly because they wanted to standardize things across their empire at that point. Um, and then they went on from there. Dur during the First World War, uh, many countries, uh, that's the, the place where you get, the, you get the first wave of these national standards setting organizations, the U.S. and German organizations were created at that time, but also in the Netherlands, which was a neutral country. It was a moment when, because of the war effort, even in a, in a neutral country like the Netherlands, there became a sort of national interest that engineers reflected of saying, well, we really have to have an organization that allows all of the industries in our country to uh, be, work together and create standards in a variety of different fields. This also aggregated up to an international level um, very quickly after the national level. <laughs> in fact, there was a the first of the international standards organizations that still exists today, the International Electrotechnical Commission, was founded in what, 1904? Four or six. Four or six, depending on whether you count it by when they first met and agreed to form. <laughs> or when they, when they, said that we've now they, they got people to sign on. Um, but uh, that was dealing with electrotechnical standardization. So right away, I mean, electrical engineering was a new field, but they felt immediately the need, especially across Europe, for example, where electrical wires easily crossed national boundaries, and they immediately saw the need to have um, those to have standards internationally as well. Uh, but, so there, that happened somewhat in parallel in the early phase. But when international standardizing really took off, was not until after um, World, World War II, II. Yeah. and that's when it really. Uh, 
uh, expanded and became the major uh, direction for standards. Well, you're talking a lot about the, the organizations push for standards. Um, you use a term in the book called standardizers. Yeah. Uh, tell us something about these standardizers. I mean, I know they're engineers. I got it. But there's a lot of engineers. Who are these standardizers? How do they become standardizers? Talk to us about this, these agents of change, these, these for, this, this force that generates this whole process. So they were actually, uh, they actually formed a social movement. Um, in the early days, they all felt that setting standards was going to save the world. And they thought it would help uh, bring international peace. It didn't, of course, but they thought it would. Prosperity, help. which Prosperity, it more which for. Which is, yeah, it did more. But they were engineers who were true believers in this idea that any standard is better than no standard, and that it was really important to cut across national lines and industry lines and national lines and, and agree on things. And, and they believed because they were engineers and therefore scientific, uh, that if they work together patiently, and deliberately and with diplomacy, et cetera, they would always find the best way to do anything. And therefore the idea of creating standards on the basis of consensus of all of the, what we would now call major stakeholders or engineers representing the major stakeholders was the best way to do it. And they believed, you know, they were, they were very, um, the, the people who led the, the committees and the, the best standardizers were very diplomatic. Um, often that, multilingual. Often multilingual uh, uh, and patient, and they didn't, the, the real leaders of the movement never went to the glory themselves. They always played behind the scenes because they were trying to get everyone else to come to consensus. So, you know, the, the, the heroes of standardizing, as you might call them, <laughs> were, them. Yeah, were, um, were in fact, uh, somewhat on the self-effacing side and and they believed so strongly in the need for this that uh, they were willing to stay in the background to work and get that get everyone else to agree so charles lemaistre for example is our first big figure in this he uh, came from the channel islands <laughs> you know the little islands between france and england and he was bilingual bilingual from you know, that's, yeah, from as soon as he started talking, he was an electrical engineer. That meant he worked on, you know, electrical wires and, and, and that sort of stuff. And he was, he was, a, he was maybe the greatest promoter, certainly in the English and French speaking world of standardization. He worked tirelessly to go to country after country after country and convince people that, other engineers that they really needed to devote their time to establishing standards, volunteer their own time. The standards were not only voluntary in the sense that they were adopted voluntarily, a lot of the time spent in these things were, was done voluntarily. And the Maester traveled the world to convince everyone for 50 years that he this was, was a great thing to do. He was the secretary of the UK national body, but he was also the um, General Secretary of IEC, the International Electrotechnical Commission. And at the very end of his life, after World War II, he was instrumental in setting up ISO, the International Organization for Standardization, that is the, the, the peak of the standard system now. 
And he was considered a hero in setting up yeah. standards, say, you know, convincing people to set up standards organizations, not only in his own country, supposedly Great Britain, but in France, in Sweden, where in the US, he, yeah. in the, US, in the Soviet Union, uh, in, basically in every industrial country that that he went to, he was he was considered one of the people who uh, made this system, which is now a global system. Uh, possible, and he was honored by the engineers all over the world. Yeah, and they kind of weird. He was considered the father of standardization by many people. There are two other major figures that we talk about in the book who are also um, major standardizers who devoted their careers to this. Uh, you want to talk about the second one? Well, the, se the, the second one is a Swedish um, engineer who. Uh, was really the key figure in making the International Organization for Standardization what it became. His name was Oli Stiren. It's hilarious that he was actually a uh, modular kitchen engineer. <laughs> oh, sort of interesting for it being Swedish. Uh, but Stiren, like, um, like, like Le Maestre, was multilingual. He was a great internationalist. He was someone who, who when he was a young man, had, had been convinced to go to work with the United Nations to try to create a standardization organization in uh, Turkey. And that became kind of, he said, well, now, you know, that was so great that we did that for Turkey. This, we need to do this for the entire world. And, and he, particularly know, the developing, developing world. So particularly the developing world. As head of ISO, as the, as the uh, what was his title? Uh, executive General, Director, General Director, General Sorry, Secretary. Secretary General, probably. Right. <laughs> um, he, he went to lots of developing countries and helped them set up their own national body that then could be the member for that nation of ISO. So he was, he really pushed, um, the, the international standardization into the developing world beyond the, the, the industrialized countries into the developing countries. One of the things as a political scientist that I found interesting about Stern, and this is by Joanne, so, is, is that most of the intergovernmental organizations that work on economic issues that, that you could think of, you know, that are connected with the UN system, don't have, uh, like the World Bank, don't have great legitimacy in the developing world, even though they do lots of things for the developing world, because they're kind of run by the industrialized countries. Stern made sure that the ISO, this weird thing that is non-governmental, uh, actually has astonishing legitimacy throughout the developing world. And one of the things that was sort of a problem for political scientists is that they could never figure out why that was. Well, because it involved engineers from the developing world from the very beginning. Yeah. So let me talk about, for just a second, about a third standardizer who is one of these heroes. Um, and it's someone that you probably know about, but think of as, uh, you don't think of as a standardizer. And that is Tim Berners-Lee, the creator of the World Wide Web. Most people uh, think he's really important because he, he was the uh, inventor, in some sense, of the, the, web. the web. But I think what's more important than the original invention of the web was that the, he then set up a global standardization organization to, for the web so that uh, 
he didn't want it to balkanize and he was afraid he gave it away free to the world but then he thought it would balkanize so he set up w3c the world wide web consortium to to be a, a global standardization body to keep um, the web standardized and have a, a base across which uh, the web all worked so you know he's he's another standardizer who we don't think of most people don't think of him primarily as a standardizer but we but think his work as a standardizer was every bit as important as his work as the inventor of the web. Well, and his ideology was just, you know, he's a British electrical engineer, right? right. But his ideology and Lemaistre's, if the two of them could have been sitting in the same room together, uh, they would have been on exactly the same wavelength. I mean, they talk about, uh, Berners-Lee talks about how the internet is for everyone and the internet is going to create a peaceful world and the internet, you know, or the web is going to do all of these things. And you could see, uh, yeah. LeMaistre would be sitting there going, electricity was, but all of our standards are going to do that. And they both were believers in the idea of engineers being able to sit down together and reach consensus on something that's kind of like the one best way to do things. Well, let, let me ask you about another standardizer in your book. Um, there's this fellow by the name of Ralph Showers uh, who comes up, who comes in there. Yes, uh, I bring him up because one of the one of the generous things you did out of your project was was uh, lead us the Hagen Library uh, to Showers. But talk to me about Showers and his role in this project. Okay. So first, let me just say something about the difficulties that we encountered doing our archival work. It turned out that almost no archives have traditionally collected standardization documents. So we ended up having to follow individuals uh, down a path. And Ralph Shower Showers was someone who, whose name we were given by uh, engineers. Um, he was still alive when we were given Sorry. his name originally, but, and we tried to set up an interview with him, but he died before we could do that, but his daughters, actually gave us access to 200 boxes worth of his records at, at their home. And uh, much to our um, uh, relief, we got uh, uh, Hagley to take these records after we looked at them in their home. So they are now in a uh, the, the best possible place they could be for access by all of us. So. Uh, Future scholars can see these documents because they are um, at Hagley. So Ralph Showers was just this fascinating uh, guy. Um, he and luckily we, because we also were able to interview the daughters, and they get sent us a lot of private um, stuff, family stuff as well. Um, we we got a pretty full view of him. He was a standardizer in the area of. Um, what is was originally called radio frequency interference, and then later was shifted to to be called electromagnetic compatibility (EMC). These are the people who, you know, initially set standards that would keep um, cars from interfering with your radio inside the house, or your TV inside the house, or microwaves from interfering with the TV. And now, I mean, they are absolutely central to so much of technology today. But 
you know, it's a very obscure area. No one knows about the CMC area except the people in it. And mostly because, I mean, those of us who are as old as Joanne and I are, uh, know about this area because we used to have to play with the rabbit ears on the TV. on the television set to make to make it work. But you know the the standardization works so well that we don't have much radio electromagnetic interference. And Showers is a guy who started in this work in World War II, and became central to um, the major committee that has done this work from that from that period on onward. And not just one committee. So no, there's a whole no. layering of committees up. So he was the head of, you know, C63, Committee 63 of the U.S. National System, the ANSI, what's now ANSI um, system. But he also was the head of uh, CISPR, which was a European base. Originally, it became a special committee of IEC, the International Electrotechnical Commission. And he was the major person on and that really is from the global right. Or organization right and then in ISO he's the major figure on yeah. was the major figure until he died on that and he was you know people talked about him as the energizer bunny he just kept going and he had infinite patience to keep working going back to the table if everyone didn't agree I mean they would not go for a standard that didn't have a universal agreement that if anyone objected they wouldn't go forward with it. So he would ballot every time, I mean, uh, versions of this from, uh, there was one particular standard, they went through 11 different ballot versions that they balloted. And even on the 11th version, they had to go through four <laughs> little sub-ballotings on that before they got agreement. But he had the patience to just keep doing that and to keep writing up what the objections were and how they could get past them and, 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 doing that was critical. He was also the person who helped, um, you know, coming out of World War II, the U.S. was not used to playing in international standards. They thought that they could set standards for the U.S. and that was all that was needed. And they were the major country. So why should they bother with... Um, Especially right after the war. Yeah, <laughs> they, they were feeling very good about themselves. So um, he actually was the one who uh, helped... U.S. become a player in the international um, EMC standardization, and he was the first American to be the head of CISPR, uh, and then of the, the IEC versions of this and the ISO versions. So he really was the one who who guided the the U.S. engineers in this area into the international arena. And and like you know, in, in a sense, like, like the other people we've mentioned, he was a very, very good engineer. His his day job was to uh, be on the faculty at Penn. Right. Uh, uh, he was a very good engineer. He was an incredibly good diplomat. He, he Even though he was an American, uh, he was he was well-loved by people all over the world because he was capable of, you know, putting himself down and being modest and quiet and all of those sorts of things. And he could deal with things like the representatives of the American auto industry who were sometimes loud and um, <laughs> boisterous in one way or another, and also deal with, deal with them, them quite well. Uh, and, he, and he was patient and meticulous. Yeah. He was patient and meti meticulous and he, he just did his work and, and, and he made a huge difference in, in, a, in an area that most people aren't aware of, but without this area and without standards in this area, um, there's so much that wouldn't work in our world today. I mean, this is really what 
keeps our world uh, functioning. So, you know, having our computers not interfere with our, our other devices, for example, they're the ones who do that. So, you know, it's pretty important. I mean, you could say that we wouldn't be able to have this conversation without on Zoom without a lot of standards. That's for sure. In place. Start off with electricity, yes. you know, that, that we're relying upon, but also signal and yeah. wavelengths and other kinds of communications, the interference and all the other things like that. That's right. Uh, I mean, say, I want to ask you a little bit more about this, the difficulty of, of sources, because standards are one of those uh, features of our world which we literally take for granted. In a, in a way, the whole point of a standard is to be taken for granted, right. so that right. when you want to replace, you know, when a bolt falls out of your computer and you need to replace it with another bolt, you could just go to the hardware store and replace right. it. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. It's, and it's nothing more than just finding the right width and it goes in there, um, compared to having to contract with a local machine shop to right. recreate the, 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 what, you, what you lost. Um, so, uh, in terms of visibility or invisibility, how else did you go about researching it? You have the showers papers. That seems obviously a, a great find. But how did this invisibility, how did you get around this invisibility yeah, yeah. in your research? So we did have that. We did go to uh, ANSI headquarters in New York. ANSI is the American National Standards Institute. They told us they had no records. But then, as we, ISO told the right. NF Organization for Standardization, they said, we have no records. And those are the records are kept by the member organizations. But when you get there, they, you know, they have some records at the centralized level. But then they would each send you down another level. So from the international to the national to the IEEE, for example, they'd send you to IEEE or they'd send you to C63, the, the Electromagnetic Compatibility Committee, and then to people. So some of the so we did use both the ISO records and the IEC records. We used Craig um, and some students uh, went to Sweden to get personal records that Ole Sturen had. And convinced the, the family that of, of uh, Ole Sturen to give those records to the Swedish uh, National Standards Institute, which came up with this crazy idea that maybe they needed to have an archive uh, and collect yeah. records on a lot of things of, of that sort. So that was actually quite exciting to see, to watch that happen. Yeah. yeah. In a few cases, we found bits of stuff about standardization in the papers of people that were in an archive for another reason. Um, so your guy at Haverford. Uh, yes, um, whose name I'm, I'm now. <laughs> sorry. So one a, a standardizer uh, whose records were, were at Haverford for other reasons, had some stuff. And at the Stanford archives, I had um, a, an individual's records that included some um, ITU standardization records. Now that's an intergovernmental, right. not a voluntary private one. And we found some but of they those- intersect yeah, We found some of those at the University of Glasgow, for example, and at the Swedish, uh, or the Swiss National Archives. Right. It, again, it's this, this sort of weird thing, finding the engineer's records in other. there for other places. Yeah, yeah. but, but I, you know, I felt like I had hit the mother load when I found these 200 boxes of records um, from showers that, you know, I mean, his attic and his basement were full of these things. And I, I didn't go through 
by any means, all of them. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a relatively limited time and I focused in on the things I knew I was interested in. And there is much more to be found in those records, which are, uh, which are on deposit now at Hagley. The other um, collection, the, the current head of C63, the same committee, um, Dan Houlihan, uh, was collecting papers and digitizing them to keep the history of that organization internally. And he didn't care about the, the, the documents themselves. He, was, he, he wanted them all digitized. So when he finished digitizing the records of um, Leonard Thomas, who had been ahead of that at one point, he sent, literally shipped three boxes worth of, of documents to me at the time I was at Stanford for a year uh, on sabbatical doing research at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences. So I got these three big boxes of original documents and those also are on their way to Hagley. I'm still taking out the post-it um, flags I put on. <laughs> Actually, they would be at Hagley now if it weren't for um, the uh, COVID. Uh, things have slowed down because of that. I figured no one was going to do anything with them <laughs> during this period. So, um, but. Uh, One thing which you're, which you, you're, you're, you're saying by, by its absence is you didn't find corporate records useful. No, that's really interesting, yeah. yeah. So that's interesting. The, the individuals who served on these um, committees, some of the engineers were from corporations, but the corporate records, uh, we at least didn't find any. Um, now, I'm not sure that they don't exist. And, it, you know, we had, by the end, we had so much material and there was so much bigger story to tell with what we had that um, at some point we just had to stop. But I, I'm not convinced that if you go deep enough into some corporate records, you might not be able to find some. So, for example, the ICA records, I think if I spent enough time delving into them, RCA was very involved in the, you know, the color TV standards and the black and white TV standards. And I, I suspect that depending on what was saved, there might be some information there, but this is not stuff that's gonna be talked about at the very top of RCA. It's gonna be something happening in a sort of middle level and it, it would, it would take a lot of search. So, you know, we, we didn't, we, we didn't actually find an easy way into corporate archives. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and that, it, that was actually one of the sort of fascinating things at the beginning was to realize, and it was one of the things that, that helped us understand that what we were looking at was this network or community of engineers that was truly transnational. Even if, uh, most of the people sitting on these committees, when they're sitting there, are people who are working for a particular company, and the company has an interest in, the, in them being on the committee. They, the way the kind of system works is they thought of themselves as the standardizer, to go back to that word, and the records, therefore, got aggregated as their own records, hmm. which would not necessarily be things with, that would then appear in a corporate archive because they're not important, you know, yeah. important enough to be a, a, a person supposedly to, to have their, their things in the, in the cor corporate archive. And let me give you one example again from the electromagnetic compatibility 
um, uh, records that we got access to from the Thomas, the Leonard Thomas papers and the, and the Ralph Towers oh, yeah. papers, you get these reports that are um, from the auto, uh, people from the auto industry who were involved in electromagnetic compatibility around autos, right? So there was a, a guy from Delco who was uh, uh, the, the representative of the Society of um, Automotive, Automotive Engineers. Engineers. Yeah. yeah, and we, got, we have all of his reports that he turned into the organization and the reports of the person before him I've forgotten which company he was from, but he yeah. he was temperamentally, horribly, badly suited to, to standardizing. He was absolutely sure that the American way was the only way, and he had no interest in in doing anything but enforcing the will of the his point of view on the Europeans. And so he got nowhere, and he finally resigned. And then this guy from Delco came in, and he had um, he uh, he came to learn from Ralph Showers and, and others, how important the diplomatic level was. And yeah. so he worked very hard and over a long period of time um, achieved a lot. And, and, you know, they did some of the testing for some of these at the Delco testing yeah. um, facilities. So there is an intersection with companies, but it's, we're finding the documents more through the, the standards than through the company. Now, I actually don't know if Delco has records and maybe had we gone there too we might have found something but i don't know that we would have i mean it, it, it's not a high level decision and it's not high level stuff it's it's sort of mid-level engineering well what what's one thing that's so interesting about that joanne is that those records were not with the companies which meant the companies did not claim that they had to have those records that the records were generated and therefore should be should be in the possession of the company, right? And that's fascinating by itself because, as you know, you know we have a lot to do with Dupont, uh, where we are, and you don't find uh, you know Dupont people leaving and taking those records with them. That's just not that's just not yeah. what you do these days. You know, <laughs> right. the records are the rec it's, it's about it's you know it's, it's called intellectual property law, and that property belongs to the firm. In this case, for reasons that are very that I think have to do with your cohort, your standardizers, it seems that firms accept that these records belong elsewhere, which yeah. allows you to trace that whole process, which itself is a very interesting dynamic in 20th century capitalism, to have mm -hmm. that, if you will, uh, an exception, a very large exception um, to corporate control over the activities of their employees. Right. Yeah. So one, right. one of the examples of this, this is to go back to those records that we found at, at Haverford. So it's his Murray Freeman. Is Murray that Freeman, Freeman, yeah. So Murray Freeman was worked for Bell Labs. He was one of the people who uh, created Fortran, the, the language. Um, and Bell Labs didn't want his records. Uh, Lucen, you know, thought because his what he spent most of his time doing, yes, they wanted his stuff about software creation, but he had all these other records that were about the standardization across networks. It's kind of early inter internet stuff right. that he, he had been doing from the 1970s onward. Um, it, not only did, did Lucent not 
make a claim to them in in any way. There was this sort of sense, oh, that would just take up space. That, you know, it's, it's not it's it's not something that was was of any interest. His um, his alma mater, his alma mater, Haverford, Haverford, whose librarian happened to have previously been at Hagley, <laughs> um, uh, under under her the division there. Uh, they they figured oh you know Murray Freeman is a Haverford graduate who you know kind of invented some something fairly important like Fortran maybe we really wanted his records and that was great because that that it's nice that there was another place where the, where such records would would appear. That's fascinating. Well, let me let me start closing this up here um, and ask you a broad question. Um, suppose someone's read your book, they listen to this interview. Uh, the scales have fallen from their eyes and they see the importance <laughs> of standards. Uh, suggest some vectors for further research that you'd encourage uh, a graduate student, some fact who wants to develop more this idea of standards and what directions are there. Yeah. So I think there's a lot to be done in looking at standards within particular domains. We dipped in and out of a few domains, but there are many domains where there's lot of interesting stuff around standard setting and where the social dynamics and the political dynamics and so on are, are quite interesting. So, you know, anything internet related, if you dig deep enough and those, those, uh, the IETF, the Internet Electrotechnical Engineering Task Force, Engineering Task Force, sorry, the uh, Internet Engineering Task, Task Force. Force, right, IETF is, um, its records are all online and available. So you can get those and the W3C and you can go in and look at one particular development and, and get all the back and forth and discussion of, that went on uh, to set those standards. So within specific domains, I think there's fascinating stories. Aircraft uh, is a, another place that we go see all of, and all the civil aviation stuff was huge, but uh, but we didn't, you know, just touch the very surface of it. Yeah. So there's many areas, specific domains that uh, that people that. So for a doctoral student, I think that's a great way to go, um, and, and and it intersects, for example, in Lee Vinsel's recent book, Moving Violations, about the auto and regulation. He defines regulation broadly and talks not just about. Uh, governmental regulation, but also about standards at, at some point and standard setting. So it intersects with things like regulation in certain areas. So, you know, that's a great example also. So two things that I would mention. One is the, the way in which, because of the things Ole Sterin did of opening up the standardization okay. system to the entire developing world, there's a way in which a lot of the people who are involved in standard setting from parts of the developing world also became key people in innovation within uh, the technology technological areas of their particular country, as in the case of Turkey or in Brazil or in India, which is actually a really big deal. Maybe in China, although that's a, a much harder harder story to to figure out. And those there are lots of dissertations there. And then the one thing that both of us noticed as we finished the book. There's a whole story about gender and race <laughs> um, that uh, we didn't talk about. We talked at we the talked very at end. We talked at the very end, but but there's a there's a way in there's a way in which this 
the standardization story, I mean, it sounds like it's wonderful and transnational and all of this sort of stuff, but until very recently, it was mostly a white guy's story. Yeah. Uh, and trying to, f to figure out both um, the ways in which the engineering profession globally had sort of barriers to entry for, to different groups. And then what's been happening since the 1980s when those barriers have started to fall down in a variety of ways is absolutely fascinating. And it's a book, I mean, if that would be the next book, if I were wanted to do on standards, that would be the one. And how the developing world has gotten more involved in yeah. some of these uh, is part of that as well. So it's diversity on a whole, a whole slew, slew of, of dimensions, dimensions yeah. you know, gender, race, but nationality, nationality and, and, and all kinds of areas. So there's huge stories to be told there. Well, there you go. Great project, great research directions. Uh, I'm sure reading more. I hope people go and take a look at your book. Oh, and, uh, I hope so you. too, if I could just for a second. I, I think Johns Hopkins Press did a fabulous job on our cover, so I have to show <laughs> the screw and bolt that they it's created. A, a, someone actually wrote a, created a cover where that was more than just a picture. That's right. Well, thank you very much. We'll end the recording. Hang on. Thank you thank very you. much.